0: Well, if you have your Bibles with you again this morning, I invite you to turn with me to the Old Testament book of Psalms, and we'll be looking at Psalm 5 this morning. If you're using a pew Bible, you'll find it on page 570. If you're a guest with us, uh, we are in a series in the book of Psalms for the summer, and we're in Psalm 5 this morning, and I want to speak for a few minutes on this subject, walking with God in discouragement, walking with God in discouragement, Psalm 5. As you're finding your place, this psalm has become one of my favorites. It is so practical and helpful, uh, and I pray that you'll find that to be the case in your life this morning as we study it together. Psalm 5, we'll begin reading in verse 1. And this is what the Word of God says Give ear to my words, O Lord. Consider my groaning. Give attention to the sound of my cry, my King and my God. For to you do I pray. O Lord, in the morning you hear my voice, in the morning I prepare a sacrifice for you and watch. For you are not a God who delights in wickedness. Evil may not dwell with you. The boastful shall not stand before your eyes. You hate all evildoers. You destroy those who speak lies. The Lord abhors the bloodthirsty and deceitful man. But I, through the abundance of your steadfast love, will enter your house. I will bow down toward your holy temple in the fear of you. Lead me, O Lord, in your righteousness because of my enemies. Make your way straight before me. For there is no truth in their mouth. Their inmost self is destruction. Their throat is an open grave. They flatter with their tongue. Make them bear their guilt, O God. Let them fall by their own counsels. Because of the abundance of their transgressions, cast them out, for they have rebelled against you. But let all who take refuge in you rejoice. Let them ever sing for joy and spread your protection over them, that those who love your name may exult in you. For you bless the righteous, O Lord. You cover him with favor as with a shield. Psalm 3, Psalm 4, and Psalm 5 stand together in the Hebrew hymn book and very likely they stand together in the history of David. Psalm 3 is a morning prayer, Psalm 4 an evening prayer, and Psalm 5 is another morning prayer. And it is possible that these three Psalms were written in succession. If so, then it is likely that this psalm is continuing to address the rebellion of David's son, Absalom. That is why some have labeled Psalm 5 the next morning psalm, referring to the next morning when Tuesday morning's prospects are as grim as Monday mornings. In Psalm 3, David woke to his first day of exile. In Psalm 4, that day ended. And in Psalm 5, David begins a new day in the same situation. And as a result, his soul is flooded with discouragement. Discouraged souls throughout the centuries have been able to identify with David's song. According to the superscription... David wrote this sad song to be played on the instrument that was best suited to express his feelings of discouragement, the flute. The sound of the flute was appropriate for a heart in anguish, especially considering that this instrument, the flute, was used to accompany the mourning for the dead. And because this psalm was addressed to the choir master, This particular psalm was to be sung corporately by the entire congregation as they gathered for worship. Furthermore, unlike the preceding psalms where some verses were directed to the readers, as you study Psalm 5, every single verse in this psalm is addressed to God. In Psalm 5, David teaches us how to walk with God when we're discouraged through his own prayer David models biblical prayer for us and he teaches us how to respond to our discouragement with prayer and trust in God and so I've divided this psalm naturally the way it's laid out in the text with four headings and the first heading I want you to see is David's plea in verses 1 through 3 The Bible says, Give ear to my words, O Lord. Consider my groaning. Give attention to the sound of my cry, my king and my God. For to you do I pray. O Lord, in the morning you hear my voice. In the morning I prepare a sacrifice for you and I watch. David began this psalm with a passionate plea for help. These words in verses one through three are not a calm, and casual prayer it is a personal plea from someone who is very discouraged in his soul you'll notice in verses 1 through 3 that this plea of David is very personal he uses the word my six times in these three verses and you can feel a sense of the discouragement in his soul by the very first phrase in the very first verse. David begins the psalm by saying, Give ear. It literally means to broaden the ear with the hand. Haven't you ever seen someone who's having trouble hearing cup their hand and put it up to their ear as if that's going to help them hear you clearer and better? And that is the picture and the idea that David has at the outset of this psalm. He is so discouraged in his soul, he's wondering if God is going to hear him and listen to him. And so he prays, God, give ear, cup your hand, God. Put it up to your ear, God, and pay attention to what I'm about to say. And if you've ever been discouraged in your soul and tried to pray, you've often prayed the same thing. God, are you listening? God, will you give ear to my prayer? He's discouraged. And you can feel that discouragement in the tone of his plea in verses 1 through 3. It's also important to note in these three verses that there is what uh, grammatarians call synonymous parallelism. And what that means is as each line in this psalm progresses... Each thought is restated in the next line with compounding intensity. Look at the text, and I'll show you what I mean. There's three sets of three in these first three verses. There's three verbs. Give ear, consider, and give attention. And you hear the intensity as he moves through it. Are you listening, God? Consider what I'm saying, God. Pay attention to my plea there's three objects that he prays to the lord his king and his god and there's three prayers he prays words he groans and he cries these three sets of three emphasize a tone of urgency and intensity that reflects the growing discouragement in David's soul, and it's climaxed in the word groaning. That word is such an interesting and powerful word in the text. It could literally be translated meditation, and it's also used in Psalm 39.3, and it carries an emphasis all the way back to Psalm 1, where the godly man is described as meditating on the word of the Lord day and night. But here in the context of Psalm 5, it points to David's unspoken prayer. It points to the aching and the longing and the yearning in the innermost part of his being in his soul. One person defined groaning this way. It's when our sorrow and our situation is so beyond us that it is like a gnawing toothache in our soul. This is the groaning, this is the pain, this is the discouragement that David feels in his soul, and he's kneeling before his king and his God and his Lord, and he's pleading to him for help, and at some point in his plea, he doesn't even know what to say, and whatever's coming out of his mouth just sounds like a groaning. Do you know where my mind instantly went as I was studying this verse? Romans chapter 8 and verse 26 and what Paul teaches us that the third person of the Trinity, the Holy Spirit of God does for us in our discouragement when we're praying and we don't know what to say. He says in Romans 8.26, Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness, for when we do not know what to pray for as we ought, but the Spirit Himself intercedes for us with groanings, there's the word, with groanings that are too deep for words. This is the picture in the image of David in exile in a cave, waking up on Tuesday morning with the same outlook that he had, on Monday morning intense emotion and energy poured out of David's heart and soul towards God as he pleaded to the Lord for a hearing you'll notice in verse number two David addresses the Lord as my king and my God and by acknowledging the Lord as his king and his God David is acknowledging that the Lord is the supreme ruler and judge of his life And because he is the king, he is the Lord of heaven. He's the sovereign ruler of David's life and he's the sovereign ruler over the whole earth, including the very circumstances that David finds himself in in this very moment that are contributing to his discouragement. And through the use of this language, David is reminding himself and us that because the Lord is King and because the Lord is God, he is the only one to whom David can pray. And he's also reminding himself and he's reminding us that there is no need in our life that is greater than our God and our King and our Lord. He's sovereign over it all. And so in the time of his soul's greatest need, David, depended upon the Lord. In verse three, we see that David was not only passionate in his prayer, he was prepared when he prayed. Verse three is where we get the title that this is a psalm for the morning. David says, "O oh Lord, in the morning you hear my voice in the morning, I prepare a sacrifice for you, and I watch." And friends, pay attention to verse 3. It is so practical and helpful for us. David, even in his discouragement, mark this, he began his day with God. He began his day with God. David had a morning routine of orienting himself and his life and his troubles upward to heaven. Spending time in God's presence in the first moments of the day shaped David's thoughts and David's perspective, and it prepared him to view the day from God's divine perspective. And it's a reminder to all of us this morning that the majority of our waking hours are spent in the world, not in a quiet room with an open Bible set before us. Listen, church, which is why the first moments of our day are so important. And they should be guarded carefully. Through these first moments of the day, God provides us with the wisdom. God provides us with the discernment that we need to navigate the day and to navigate the decisions that are before us. The distractions that we'll encounter. The dangers that will try to trip us up and take us out of the race. And the deceptions that will inevitably come our way. The first moments of the day are the most important and they can't be underestimated and that's why I would challenge every young husband and dad in this room to guard some of those early moments for your wife to give her a moment to catch her breath and spend even if it's five minutes In the presence of the lord before she faces the day you should be the gatekeeper as her spouse in making that possible for her making sure that she is replenished in her soul and in her heart and in her mind before she goes about the day's activities and i would say to the men in the room this morning how How in the world would you expect to lead your wives and your children and your families in a godly manner? How in the world would you expect to conduct your work and the affairs of your hands throughout the day in a godly manner without giving some of the first moments of your day to the Lord? David's in exile, his whole existence is threatened. He is completely discouraged in his soul and he wakes up with the same prospects that he faced the day before and the first thing he does is give his waking moments to the Lord because he's desperate and in need. Chuck Swindoll said, when our outlook is dim in the morning, when discouragement worms its way in, a good remedy is to focus our attention upward. And what a difference it makes in our day. Throughout Scripture, spiritual turning points always occurred in the morning. Darkness gives way to light as contemplation of God and His Word yields insight into our lives. And so He gave God the first moments of His day. And you'll notice that His prayer was orderly and systematic. This is helpful. He says that He prepares a sacrifice. It literally means to direct. And it's used to describe the placing of the pieces of the animal on the altar for sacrifice in the book of Leviticus. It's used to describe the placing of the loaves of bread on the table in the tabernacle. And it is used to describe the placing of a meal before guests. This word also has a military connotation. A soldier presenting himself to his commander for orders for the day. And what this psalm is teaching us is that when David approached God, he had a plan and he had an order and he had a direction. He did not approach God thoughtlessly. And you'll also notice in verse 3, That as David approached God, as he prepared that sacrifice of praise and worship and surrendering his life to God on the altar every morning, he also was expectant. He watched. I'll illustrate it this way. He's alone in that cave. No one else is around. He woke up. He got his Keurig started. And he got over in the corner alone with his cup of coffee. And he knelt down in an orderly, systematic, desperate way with a plan and a purpose before him. And he directed his life He directed his problems. He directed his troubles before God. And he offered himself before God as a living sacrifice. And he prayed and he pleaded with him in desperation. And then he got up and he began to live his day. And everywhere he went, he watched to see God's activity and work in his life. He was expecting that when he got up off the altar, God would do something in his life. That's how he prayed. He prayed and he waited, believing that God would hear him, and God would answer him, and God would work in his life. Oh, there's lessons to be learned here, friends. There's encouragement to be found in these verses. David's discouragement moved him toward God. So I ask you this morning, in the discouragement of your soul, has your discouragement moved you closer to God? Or further away from him. David began his day with prayer. Do you? David had a plan for prayer. He was prepared when he came into God's presence. Do you have a plan for meeting with God? Do you have a place where you're going to meet him? David acknowledged that God was greater than the needs in his life. And I ask you this morning, do you believe that God is greater than the needs in your life today? Oh, I challenge you this morning, friends. I challenge you this morning to give God the first 15 minutes of your day and see what happens. Give Him the first 15. Get up, get your coffee, find a place, find a peaceful, quiet place. Open your Bible, read a chapter, and then everything you read, just pray it back to God. Give Him first 15 minutes of your day and see what happens it's his plea i have to move on verses 4 to 7 we see david's perspective he says for you're not a god who delights in wickedness evil may not dwell with you the boastful shall not stand before your eyes you hate all evildoers you destroy those who speak lies the lord abhors the bloodthirsty and deceitful man But I, through the abundance of your steadfast love, will enter your house. I will bow down toward your holy temple in the fear of you. Now notice in the text in verse 4, the transition with the word for. This word introduces the basis for David's passionate plea and expectancy in verses 1 through 3. And here's what David does, friends, in his prayer and in his discouragement. He remembers and he rests in the character of God and in verses 4 through 6 David highlights the holiness of God with seven succinct statements and I'm lifting them right out of the text right before you so look in your Bible and you'll see them number one God does not delight in wickedness verse number four number two evil may not dwell with God verse number four Number three, the boastful cannot stand before God. Verse number five. Number four, God hates evildoers. Verse number five. Number six, God destroys those who speak lies. Verse six. Number six, God abhors the bloodthirsty. Verse six. And number seven, God abhors the deceitful man. Verse six. Can you see it? David was gripped. By the holiness of God. And notice, just as there was a progression in verses 1, 2, and 3 of David's plea, there is a progression in verses 4, 5, and 6 in David's statements regarding God's holiness. So that by the end, David is emphasizing, look at the text, he is emphasizing what God hates, what God destroys, and what God abhors. David is teaching us that those who reject the wisdom of the Lord and live by their own folly cannot stand their ground before God. Here the wicked are characterized as liars and murderers and deceivers. And God's attitude toward them is one of abhorrence and hate. And their ultimate destiny will be destruction. And those who exhibit these characteristics and live their lives in this way will never be able to be in the presence of God's holiness. Now, I want you to look at your Bible carefully so you can't say that your pastor made something up. I want you to see it for yourself in the text. And I want you to notice that God does not say that He hates the sin and loves the sinner. Do you see it? The text says... That God hates all evildoers. He hates those who their way of life is sin, sin, sin. One commentator described it this way. It has become fashionable to speak of God hating the sin and loving the sinner. And while there is a sense in which that distinction is valid in that He loved a world of sinners like thus... There is no getting away from the fact that God hates the sinner who is engaged in those rebellious activities. It is the sinner who deserves to perish. If God ceased to hate sin and those who do it, God would cease to be holy, friends. And He would cease to be perfect. And He would cease to be God. And if you struggle with David's statement about the holiness of God and his hatred of sin, it means that you are not taking God's holiness as seriously as he does. And we will never take sin as seriously as God does until we take his holiness as seriously as he does. Notice how he ends this statement about the holiness of God. He abhors these things. It's connected to the word in Scripture describing sin that is very powerful called an abomination. It describes that which is totally abhorrent to God. God is so holy, he is not neutral regarding sin and sinners. He is holy, 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 Lord God Almighty. And it's interesting that in the midst of his discouragement, the first characteristic of God that David remembers and rests on is God's holiness. Because his holiness is the sum total of who God is now, I want you to show you something very interesting in the text that you'll find helpful. In verse 7, David continues to exalt God's character, but he gives a different emphasis. He emphasizes God's steadfast love. So do you see see the connection and the comparison? He emphasizes God's absolute holiness, and then he turns right around and emphasizes God's love and His mercy and His grace. And notice what happens in verse 7. Notice how he begins. He begins with a stark contrast. But I... And he's expressing this sharp contrast between the Lord's rejection of the wicked and His acceptance of David... And while the wicked are barred from God's presence, David has complete access to the throne of God. But notice what the text says about David. It doesn't say that David has complete access to the throne of God because he's better than the wicked. It doesn't say that. It says that David has access to the holy presence of God because God in his mercy and his grace has aboundingly poured out his steadfast love on the life of David. And you see, friends, that's the difference between a believer and an unbeliever. It's the difference between David and the wicked. We are all sinners, and we have all fallen short of the glory of God. And because of our sin, all of us are born in sin and born in separation of God. And the only difference between us who believe in Christ and have trusted in Christ for our salvation and the forgiveness of our sins and those who are still in their sins is the fact that we have received the mercy and the grace and the steadfast love of God through His Son, Jesus Christ. And I want to say to you this morning, listen to me, this is important, except for the grace of God and the Holy Spirit of God living inside of a believer, there's not a single sin that you wouldn't commit that the world doesn't commit. The only difference between you and them is the grace of God and the Holy Spirit of God living inside of you. And if you walk around saying, well, I would never do anything like that, you have underestimated your sin. You've underestimated the power of the flesh. The only difference between you and those people that you're judging is that you've tasted the grace of God and they haven't. That's why Paul said in Titus chapter 3 verses 4 through 6 when the goodness and loving kindness of our God and Savior appeared He saved us not because of works done by us in righteousness but because of His own mercy and by the washing of regeneration and the renewal of the Holy Spirit whom He poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior. That's how a person is different. That's how a person gets saved. That's how a person can go from wickedness into the very presence of the holiness of God. It's not because of anything that you've done. It's because of everything that the Lord Jesus Christ has done for you on the cross and the Holy Spirit is placed in your life. All you did was recognize your sin through the work of the Holy Spirit, confess your nothingness, declare Jesus Christ as your Savior and receive Him as a gift and God did the rest of it. Oh, and by the way, just so we're clear, all the ability that you had to confess Christ and to come to Him, that was a work of God too. So you've got nothing in this. It's grace. That's what makes grace, grace. If you had something in it, it wouldn't be grace. It's mercy because you don't deserve it. But He loved you enough to pour His love and mercy out on you. And so, this contrast, it couldn't be clearer. And so i got to ask you this morning, i got to stop right here in the sermon and ask every single person in this room this morning, have you experienced the mercy of God like David did? Is His steadfast love abounding over your life today? Can you come boldly into His presence and His throne like David did in verses 1 through 3 because He's given you mercy and grace and love? Look at what David says in verse 7. Because of the steadfast love of God on his life, he'll enter God's house and his, he'll bow down before God in fear and worship. Dale Ralph Davis said David is both lured by grace and he's sobered by fear. What a perfect combination for worship. Oh, this is so good, friends. Don't miss this. This is all happening in his life while he's discouraged. <laughs> he's tasted grace and mercy and love and he has confidence because of that love and that mercy and grace that in the discouragement of his soul he can go to his king he can go to his god and god will hear his prayers and god will answer him and god will deliver him from his enemies not because of anything he's done because of god's grace It reminds us that God's unwavering love and grace for us in Jesus Christ should give us immense confidence in our worship. It should give us immense confidence when we pray. We can count on God because of His love and mercy and grace through His Son, Jesus Christ, to hear our prayers and to deliver us from our enemies. Because of His love, mercy, and grace that He's displayed to us through His Son, God will never abandon us. We can come to Him It also reminds us that in the worship of our great God, listen church, there is no place for flippancy and casualness. We need to be reminded, as David was reminded, that the only reason why we can come into the holiness of God's presence is because of Jesus Christ and His work on the cross. It cost Jesus His life. So that you and I could gather in this place in the presence of God's holiness and worship Him. And we should never forget that. We should never cheapen it. We should never come to worship with a flippant, casual attitude. We're coming to encounter the God of the universe in all of His holiness. So David reminds us that when we are discouraged, it is helpful to review and remember the attributes of God. Because when our perspective is on God and his character rather than our circumstances, listen, church, God's character will dispel the discouragement. And so when you pray, do you base your prayers on who God is? On his holiness and his love? Friends, do David's statements regarding sin and sinners make you feel uncomfortable? Do they rub you the wrong way? If so, it could be that you've formed your understanding of God from somewhere other than the Bible. It could also mean that you don't consider sin as deadly as God considers it. And I would encourage you to reorient your thinking to the Bible and what God says about it than what you think is true. When we not only see David's plea and David's perspective in verses 8 through 10, we see David's prayer. He says, Lead me, O Lord, in your righteousness because of my enemies. Make your way straight before me, for there is no truth in their mouth. Their inmost self is destruction. Their throat is an open grave. They flatter with their tongue. Make them bear their guilt, O God. Let them fall by their own counsels. Because of the abundance of their transgressions, cast them out, for they have rebelled Against you. I'm approaching these verses backwards. In verse 9, David turned his enemies in his discouragement over to the Lord. He realized that not a word from the mouth of his enemies could be trusted. They spoke destructive, slanderous lies about him, rallying others against him, and twisting the truth. It's interesting to note when you study verse 9 that the Apostle Paul in Romans chapter 3 and verse 13 quotes it. And he quotes it, reasoning that everyone is under the power of sin and that in the context of Romans 3, only a person can be restored to God through the work of Jesus Christ as their Savior. Then you'll notice in verse number 10, David prayed for God's justice. He makes three simple requests. He prays that his enemies would bear their guilt, that they would fall by the deceit of their own counsels, and that they would be cast out. And I want you to notice the text in verse 10. This is really important. David isn't praying for vengeance, that God would have retribution for him. David is praying that God will bring judgment on his enemies. Look, because they rebelled against God. David, even in his discouragement, even in his pain, even in his exile, is more concerned about the glory of God than he is himself. And David could not bear to see God's name profaned. And so he says, God, because they're rebelling against you, would you bring judgment now? And in case you're struggling with David's prayer, I want you to understand that God was bringing judgment regardless. and David just asked God to bring it sooner rather than later. Now look at verse 8. Because verse 8 is the heart of the psalm. Verse 8 is the prayer of the psalm. And I find verse 8 so practical and helpful in my life. And I'm going to illustrate for you how practical it is in my life in just a moment. This is the heart of David's prayer. And I want you to notice in the text that David prays the two prayers that he prays in verse 8. He says because of his enemies and what they were doing in verses 9 and 10. And so in his discouragement, David didn't want to resort to the tactics of his enemies. He knew that discouragement can easily escalate into resentment and bitterness and hatred and retaliation and despair. And so David prayed that the Lord would lead him. That was the first prayer. You see it in verse 8. And that God would make a straight path for him. That is the second prayer in verse 8. And so when David prayed for the Lord to lead him in his righteousness, he was praying a prayer like this. Psalm 23, 3. He restores my soul. He leads me in paths of righteousness for His namesake. God, You know all of my enemies. You know the lies that they're saying about me. You know how they're surrounding me. You know how discouraged I am in my soul. God, would You restore my soul? And would You lead me in a righteous path according to Your way so I won't sin against You or sin against them? And God, would You do it for Your glory, for Your namesake, so that Your glory would be known Through my discouragement, that's what he was praying. Lord, lead me like that. He was praying Psalm 25, 4 through 5. Make me to know your ways, O Lord. Teach me your paths. Lead me in your truth and teach me. For you are the God of my salvation. And for you, I wait all day long. Can't you just picture him in the cave, kneeling there in the corner? God, lead me. God, teach me. God, help me to respond right. God, help me to do what's right. I'm pleading with you, and I'm waiting for you. Lead me, God. Groaning. Desperation. Discouragement. He was praying a prayer like Psalm 86, 11. Teach me your way, O Lord, that I might walk in your truth and unite my heart to fear your name god lead me and teach me i want to walk the way you want me to walk i want to do what you want me to do he was praying a prayer like psalm 143 verse 8 oh listen to this first friends you need this tomorrow morning let me hear in the morning of your steadfast love for in you i trust make me know the way i should go for to you i lift up my soul God, it's Tuesday and it looks just like Monday and I'm afraid Wednesday is going to look the same too. Make me know your love this morning. Lead me in your righteousness, God. You need to pray a prayer like that when you're discouraged. You need Him to lead you. He's righteous and true to his character in in every single one of God's actions for your life. He can be trusted and he can be depended upon and he will lead you in a way that is secure. You can trust him for that. Listen to this sentence. It came into my heart and mind right as I was shutting my computer down last night to go to bed. I looked over the whole sermon one last time. And this came into my heart. I put it in my notes this morning. Listen, it'll help you. Don't live in your discouragement. Ask God to lead you out of it. Don't stay discouraged. Ask him to lead you out of your discouragement. You can trust him for that. Notice the second prayer he prayed in verse 8. When he prayed for a straight path, he was praying a prayer like this in Psalm 143, verses 9 and 10. Deliver me from my enemies, O Lord. I have fled to You for refuge. Teach me to do Your will, for You are my God. Let Your good Spirit lead me on level ground. Oh God, I need You to lead me. I need You to lead me on level ground. I want to do Your will. Let Your Spirit come upon me and lead me, God. He was praying a prayer like Hebrews 12, 12 through 13. Therefore, lift your drooping hands and strengthen your weak knees and make straight paths for your feet so that what is lame may not be put out of joint, but rather healed. God, I'm weak. I'm wobbling. I'm running this race. I'm about ready to give up. I'm about ready to throw in the towel. God, make my path straight. Keep me away from the crooked ways. Keep me away from a crooked life. God, lead me by Your Spirit and lead me in a straight path so it's clear for everybody that's coming behind me. That's what he was praying. And I'm telling you, doggone it, every single one of us needs to pray those two prayers. We all need them. G. Campbell Morgan said, we face no day which is not filled with danger. And I say to that, that's why we need to pray. Verse 8 lead me keep me straight you say well well this this verse has become a personal prayer to you how so can you illustrate that and explain it to us i sure can i usually run on friday mornings and i'm usually working the sermon over in my head thinking about how the outline is going to come together and it's all going to come together and i can take you to a spot this past friday in my route that i was running when I started preaching to myself. I mean, the outline came. The things I wanted to say to the congregation came. And I'm just preaching it back. And I'm thinking about how I'm going to say it and how I'm going to put it in the outline. And God is my witness. Here's what I was saying to myself. Boy, I've been running this race for a while. I've been running this race in this church for a while. Been married for a while. There's a lot of history behind me. Don't know how much future is ahead of me. Boy, I sure want the Lord to lead me. I sure want Him to lead me in a straight path. When I die, and my family goes to my office, and I got four filing cabinets right there that's the life work of my life over the last 20, almost 29 years of ministry, all stored in those filing cabinets, and they start going through all that stuff, I don't want them finding secrets. I want him looking through the files and saying, he was just like that. He was just like that. Well, that doesn't surprise me, and that doesn't surprise me, and that doesn't surprise me. He was straight. He was clear. He was led. I want him to go over and pull Bibles off my shelf and say, Wow, he underlined that. That's what he was praying. That's what he was praying for himself. That's what he was praying for us. That's what he was thinking about. I want him to go grab books and say, man, he was really trying to learn that in his life. Well, he didn't do that so well. But he was trying. Do you hear me, church? Clear, straight, no crookedness, no deceitfulness what you see is what you get how how can that happen in the midst of discouragement lead me Lord lead me I surrender to you give me a straight life give me a straight path you tell me what man doesn't need to pray those two prayers you tell me what man this morning doesn't need to pray those two prayers in absolute desperation before God And if you say to me this morning Pastor, you're nuts. I don't need to pray it. You're showing how much you need to pray it by saying that. You're just not desperate enough for God. You think you got it all worked out. In your discouragement, do you pray the way David prayed? Are you leaving room for God to lead you in your life, friends? Do you pray that God would use you to lead a clear, straight example of what it means to walk with God? I wonder this morning, I really wonder this morning, if there's some who need to just confess, even right now while I'm still finishing this sermon, your sin, your crooked path, God's zeroed in on you right now this morning, this very moment. You say, well, how do you know that? Well, your mind is full of what you need to confess right now. That's how you know. Your mind's full of it right now, what you need to confess. Your mind's full of what you need to turn away from, what's been crooked. Your mind's full of what you pray the person sitting beside you would never find out. I wonder if you need to confess it. Right now. Right where you're sitting. Turn from it. Well, we see his plea. We see his perspective. We see his prayer. We see his praise. Look at how he ends. But let all who take refuge in you rejoice. Let them ever sing for joy. And spread your protection over them. That those who love your name may exalt in you. For you bless the righteous, O Lord. You cover him with a favor as with a shield. David's high view of God and his character led him to end this psalm with high praise and worship. He contrasts again in verses 11 and 12 with the word but, emphasizing the difference between those who rebel against God and those who find refuge in God. Do you see it? Do you see what he says there in verse 11? Let all who take refuge... That phrase, take refuge, is not a quick fix. Like you're uh, running and and rain suddenly comes upon you and you see a little roof over there in the building and so you get off your route and you run over there and stand under that roof until the thunderstorm passes by and then you back out on the race. No, taking refuge in God is a lifelong journey. You take refuge in Him for your salvation and you keep Him as your refuge the rest of your life until you end in glory. That's what he's talking about. And notice what he prays. He prays, God, those who find refuge in you in their discouragement, they'll rejoice. They'll forever sing for joy. They'll be protected and they'll exalt in you, God. Isn't that great? That you, in your discouragement, you come to God and you find refuge in him and listen to what God does. Look at the text. Do you see it? He takes your discouragement and he turns it to joy. He takes your weakness and he gives you a song to sing. He takes your insecurity and he gives you security. All when you come to him for your refuge. And then notice in verse 12, he concludes by affirming God's supreme goodness to his people. He blesses the righteous and he covers them with a shield. Here's the picture. There's two kinds of shields in the Bible. A short shield that just covers about your midsection. And a full shield that covers head to toe. It's the shield that's described in Ephesians chapter 6 in the armor of God. And the word for shield that David uses here is referring to the full shield. And notice how he describes it. It covers all of you. Don't miss this. Even in your discouragement, you go to God as your refuge and God becomes your shield and he puts joy in your heart. And he puts a song in your heart. You're safe and you're secure and you're so safe and secure. You got the shield of God's favor surrounding you. Do you see it? Do you see it in verse 12? It's God's favor over your life acting like a shield around you. And it's not because you deserve His favor, it's because His favor was won for you through His Son on the cross. So I love how Herbert Lockyer described in one sentence the end of this psalm. Truly, this is a divine promise of infinite length, of unbounded breadth, of unutterable preciousness. God is the discouraged soul's shield. His favor rests upon his people. Is God your refuge today, friends? Has he put a song in your heart and given you a reason to sing? In the midst of an evil world, do you sense God's shield of protection over your life? Do you love and exalt in the God of the Bible? Are you walking with God this morning? In this psalm, David models for us how to walk with God in discouragement. He was consumed with a holy passion for God. He sought God with total abandonment and urgency. And his hope was not based on his circumstances, but upon God's unchanging character. I pray today that we would find in our discouragement what David found in his, a righteous and merciful God who is waiting to meet with us every single morning. Let's pray.